Thank you so much for being here and sticking around. I'm Kia Kokolicheva, I'm a reporter with Axios, and I'm here with Howie Liu. Hello. Founder and CEO of Airtable. And we're going to chat about Airtable and a lot of other fun stuff. So thank you for being here, Howie. Of course. Thanks for having me. Um, how about we start with a quick telling of how Airtable came about? Where did the idea come from? How did you guys start that? Give us a story. Yeah. So Airtable is almost 10 years old as a company. And uh, it really started as, a, uh, as an idea to democratize software creation. So I had uh, founded a very short-lived first company uh, called Etacts, uh, went through Y Combinator, sold it to Salesforce. And then while there, um, really got the idea about you know, business applications in the cloud. Uh, Salesforce was growing um, its product, uh, Force.com at the time, very uh, quickly. And you know, to me, it seemed like there was an opportunity to go and consumerize that kind of experience. And low code wasn't really a category nobody was talking about, you know, apps at the time. Um, and even- What year know, is that? Uh, 2011 um, through 12. And, uh, and even the consumerization of enterprise with products like Miro and Figma and Zoom and Slack that we all know now had not yet started. And so it was really, really early days, but, um, but you know, I had in my head this idea that you could go out and build this product that was so delightful, people would just love using it, adopt it, and, uh, and ultimately you know, pay for it. Um, and uh, I will say, every investor at the time thought we were nuts. Um, they were like, okay, you can build a great product, but you know, people will not come. So. Uh, it's been a, it's been a long journey, but I think we've uh, we've figured out you know the the uh, distribution model, and and uh, as of late, we've also uh, built an enterprise business around the uh, around the product as well. All right, we're gonna jump to something a lot more recent. So in December, you guys announced that you raised your latest uh, funding round. It was seven hundred thirty-five million at eleven billion dollar valuation. Um, and at the time, you talked about how it gives you more financial freedom. You can be more flexible with timing of an IPO or anything like that. Give us more color around raising that round, because you did one less than a year prior. Um, why raise it? Why then? What does that mean? Yeah. Well, um, I, uh, I wish I could say I was a brilliant macro investor, but I think we, we definitely uh, got lucky with the timing. Um, and, you know, we didn't need this round. We, we had plenty of capital left uh, from our prior rounds. In fact, we hadn't touched any of the funding from, uh, from our Series E, which we closed in uh, earlier um, last year. And, uh, but, you know, I think opportunistically, we, we had a lot of interest around our category, our product. Um, I think we had proven out a lot of our enterprise uh, land and expand mechanics. So the business was really humming. Um, enterprise revenue was and is still growing very quickly. Um, we had really great net dollar retention as a business. And so, you know, rather than uh, wait to raise the capital that we would need eventually to continue fueling growth, um, when the opportunity arose, we, uh, we decided to, to just go and raise a, a quick round. Um, so, uh, so it was, um, you know, serendipitous. I think ultimately now we're, we're obviously very glad that we raised that capital so that, you know, we're, we're really not um, too worried about how the you know, markets continue to evolve in the you know, near to even medium term. And I think that's always been part of our philosophy is to you know, really be able to make the right long-term bets in the business and not have to you know, play the quarter by quarter or even year to year growth game. Um, you you kind of touched on that, the market. So that happened right around the time that there was a big sell-off, all the tech stocks were down. Um, and here you are with your $11 billion valuation. How do you think about that now in the context of the public comps and your other private peers? Um, 
where does that come from? Is your growth so incredible that it justifies evaluation? Like how, where's the math? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the, the math sounds obvious, but I realized that, you know, I hadn't full, fully internalized or understood how the math works until fairly recently. And uh, in that, I think the, you know, it's the outer years of durable growth that really matter, that drive valuation. You know, you can grow 100% you know, for the next year or even two years, but if there's an expectation that you'll sharply decelerate and flatline after that, then you're a much less valuable business than one that could grow even more modestly, I call it like 70, 80%, um, but there's a belief that the market is big enough, you're executing well enough, you have enough product differentiation to sustain that level of growth you know, three, four, five plus years out. Um, so I think what we're really betting on uh, is you know, driving durable growth. We're not too worried about you know, each quarter do we hit or exceed our numbers, although we, we have. Um, you know, but, but even more importantly is you know, setting the expectation that we're really investing in the long term of the business. So now we're, we're really focused on driving you know, even more adoption of Airtable you know, from the ground up, not just focused on you know, the, the short term enterprise numbers, but can we put out enough seeds of adoption you know, in the world to become ubiquitous and really become the category defining product out there. Is, um, is the market and sort of what was happening, did, did that change your, uh, your plans for the next 12 months? Does that change your IPO plans? Are you allocating capital a little differently now? So um, we are not changing our plans, but the fact that we had the additional capital is, is part of why we haven't had to change the plan. So as of our Series E, which happened um, earlier uh, last year, you know, we, we had been on this very aggressive growth uh, path. You know, the, the business has been you know, profitable for, for brief periods um, you know, in the, the earlier years. And I think structurally, it's a very efficient business. You know, we have all of this organic growth because of the product and the delight around that and word of mouth um, driving you know, many thousands of you know, effectively to us, free signups at the top of the funnel. And then many of those convert into revenue uh, very efficiently, either through a credit card payment or, you know, uh, a very efficient sales touch. Um, but, uh, but I think over the past year, we've really started to aggressively invest into, you know, the product, for instance, and also, you know, really broadening our, our reach in terms of, you know, uh, market, uh, you know, uh, penetration and, getting more logos landed within enterprise. And so that step up in, in, um, you know, in investment has also increased our burn during that time. And I think the Series F really allows us to you know, just think long-term and not you know, have to pull back for short-term reasons um, you know, as we go on this path to win the category. Are you already thinking about going public at some point? Like, what, Where in the horizon is that? Yeah, so... You know, it's it's definitely on our minds. Um, you know, we're in the nine figures of revenue. Uh, you know, growing very quickly. So, you know, by some measures, we could be. You know, if, if we wanted to, we we could. Uh, you know, rush uh, the path towards uh, being public and, and do it sooner rather than later. Um, but we've always seen being public as more of a milestone than an end goal. You know, it, um, when I started my career in uh, in the Bay Area and, and uh, in the whole world of tech, um, I remember people would say, you know, going IPO was kind of like the end all be all. Like, you know, they they talked about it like it was success uh, embodied, you know, like this is a company that's going to IPO. And, you know, certainly it takes a lot to get to that stage. But I think for us, it's always been more important, you know, to focus on the long term. And 
um, especially as of right now with all the volatility you see in the markets and I think the distraction that can create um, both to employees as well as management, you know, shareholders, et cetera, um, I think we're, we're really just kind of focused on investing into the business. So it's, it's not on the horizon in the very near term, um, but I, we want to have the discipline to be public capable whenever it is appropriate. So uh, not for the next year, um, and, uh, but you know, we want to be uh, you know, structured in a way where you know, we, we have the uh, predictability um, and we're really thinking about the business in a mature way that a public company would be. Let's talk about Airtable, the product. Um, how do you think about not being like a one product pony um, and not just being known as, you know, the spreadsheets on steroid or like the really great database kind of product to, you know, do great things at work? Um, especially when you think about companies like Microsoft or even Salesforce and, you know, they bundle a lot of things. How do you think about that and how do you apply that? To Airtable, or do you not? Does that not matter? No, it, it's it's very relevant. I think, um, in a way, to build a really big business, you have to find some kind of wedge into the existing category landscape out there. I mean, you know, the big companies aren't dumb, and I think especially today, uh, you know, the Microsoft um, of of the past ten years has shown itself to be a very lethal and innovative competitor to you when you know when they really care, right? Um, and uh, and I remember actually um, before starting uh, you know before uh, starting my first company like you know Microsoft uh, you know I thought of as as kind of a um, you know increasingly irrelevant company as as many of us probably did at the time um, but you know I think now they've shown you know when you have the right strategy the right execution and a really large existing distribution base you know, it can make it really hard for new entrants to make a dent into those markets, right? Obviously, Slack, um, you know, uh, seeing a lot of resistance from, from, uh, from Microsoft Teams uh, in their race to, to capture the enterprise. Um, so I think for us, it, it's definitely been top of mind. We've always talked about, you know, our greatest competition eventually coming from Microsoft. Um, but in the near term, I think we've been able to wedge in between their current focus areas, um, and especially because Airtable is not a wholesale replacement for you know, Office or even Microsoft Excel, but really it's a novel product and a novel category of its own. Um, and we think of it as you know, low-code application building that you know, individual end users within the enterprise can actually adopt and implement on their own. So you know, the fact that uh, we're, we're coming in and enabling uh, new apps to be created, new business value to be, cre to be created, and then, you know, accordingly to monetize that, um, you know, as opposed to trying to go in and displace the budget of an existing category, I think makes it much more, in our minds, plausible that we can go and continue to grow uh, this category. Um, I think at some point, the, you know, the, the big companies will certainly, uh, you know, wake up and, and uh, you know, put in more fierce competition, but, um, but for the time being, uh, we see a pretty clear path of execution, uh, as a um, uh, as a leader of our own category, but not is I mean it's not just Microsoft and company. You've got the notions and the codas of the world. Like how do you think about those rivals because they come from a place that's much more similar to where you come from? Yeah, I you know I think the the landscape of you know collaborative work management, uh, if you will, or just disrupting how every knowledge worker does their job um, is, is so big um, and so uh, heterogeneous in terms of the actual problems to be solved that there are going to be multiple products 
that can grow and become very large. Um, I think you mentioned a few. Uh, you know, and I, I think each of, each of the products that I've seen some level of success in the market um, has a different take on how to solve that, that, those problems. Um, Notion, I think of as a more you know, Word document-like product that has even more you know, kind of structured uh, abilities. It's, it's kind of like a reimagination of like Microsoft Word for the modern age, right? Where it's a much more fluid canvas. Um, I think Microsoft is actually uh, responding to that very directly with um, some of their, their latest uh, product offerings, their fluid framework, uh, et cetera. And, uh, and so I think it's a really interesting take on one subset of the problem. You know, you have products like Asana that I think of as much more project management and task oriented. Um, but, you know, the, the space that we're going after, we really think of as low-code apps. Um, and so we were built from the get-go um, around that concept. You know, we started with this relational database product that anyone could use and have layered on these additional pieces of customization like logic um, through automations or an interface designer that lets you create a custom view that you can deploy to, um, to your uh, end users. And all of these things, I think, come together to deliver different types of value to our customers than anything else that's out there. Is there a world when uh, a bunch of you guys band together and you're like the new Microsoft Word or the new Microsoft Office? I think it's certainly interesting. I mean, um, there's obviously two ways that that could happen. One is through partnerships. And I think you saw this a little bit with like Slack and, and Zoom, um, you know, doing some partnerships. I think you'll see more of that um, across the, you know, Rebel Alliance, if you will. Uh, you know, but I think there's, there's a limit to how much you can do there. And um, I think, you know, ultimately every product does have nuances. They don't, you know, it's not um, like they form this perfectly you know, Misi or mutually exclusive, comprehensively exhaustive suite of products. And each one of them kind of has, um, you know, a differing set of strengths and, you know, ideal customers and buyers, et cetera. So, you know, I think um, that will only go so far. I think you might start to see some roll-ups in the category. Um, so, you know, certainly um, some of these products are going to acquire each other, uh, you know, and, and uh, there is value to having a single, um, you know, point of, uh, you know, sale basically uh, as a vendor, um, to go and offer multiple products. Um, for us, you know, it's not really been top of mind. I think we're, we're seeing a lot of traction with our go-to-market model. So we don't feel um, an existential threat from not having you know, stronger distribution through other companies. And right now, we're just focused on going out, continuing to compound our organic adoption, and then you know, continuing to go and monetize that really, really deeply with our enterprise land and expand, which you know, over the past year has been uh, really effective. Speaking of like partners and f product friends, um, one thing we've seen a lot of these companies do is start to you know push out APIs, SDKs, all kinds of um, dev tools to have other people build on top of them and become a platform. Um, where are you guys on that? Is that um, part of the vision? Yeah, uh, it definitely is. I think um, you know the the power of developer ecosystems has certainly you know uh, played out as an important story in I think most SaaS platforms uh, over the past five or even ten years. Um, you know, you look at Shopify and there's an incredible ecosystem around them, uh, or Atlassian, uh, etc. Um, and I think 
the key is timing. Um, so it's not a matter of whether, but really when. Um, you know, we already do have a platform uh, you know, with our APIs. We, we allow third-party developers to build apps on top of Airtable and then distribute them through our marketplace. Um, we don't yet offer monetization of those apps. So if you want, as a third-party developer, to make money off of those apps, you kind of have to figure out your own means of collecting payments. Um, but I think uh, you know, now is the time where we're starting to invest into that. And I think these are things that, you know, they're like new S-curves that take a while before they really start to pick up and, and generate a lot of, um, you know, steam. Uh, but it is important. And I think important uh, because, one, you know, it helps to further deepen the value proposition of Airtable, you know, faster than we can just go and build every additional feature that customers may want, customers may want um, you know, to enable this enormous ecosystem of you know, potential developers to come in and do that for us. Um, I think it's also important because there are just going to be some industries or use cases that we'll never understand as deeply as somebody who's really deep, you know, well-versed in that world would. So you know, in the construction world, there may be really specific add-ons or functionality needed to fully unlock the value of Airtable. And so um, it's definitely something that we want to continue to, to uh, build out and compound over time. But it's pretty early innings for us um, you know, uh, right now. Who is building apps on top of Airtable? Right like now, what it's, kinds of yeah, apps? It's, it's a lot of um, smaller developers. So we're not seeing you know, really large companies being built on Airtable. We don't offer an OEM program, for instance, like what uh, Viva was able to leverage with Salesforce, where they've built you know, a very large, uh, I mean, literally a large public you know, company um, you know, around uh, or on top of the, the Salesforce platform, um, although, although in that case, it's a little bit more of a white label experience um, that you're using Salesforce. Um, so, you know, we're not seeing anything like that, and we're not really um, encouraging that at the moment because we don't have the, I think, um, both technical abstractions, but then also the, um, the, the partnership uh, you know, relations that, that are needed to sustain that kind of ecosystem. So at the moment, it's more small developers who recognize this incremental piece of value that they could create. Um, so maybe there's a better visualization on top of Airtable that people want, or, you know, some functionality to deduplicate, uh, you know, records or contacts uh, within the product. And so creating these more modular pieces of functionality and then um, making that available on the, uh, on the platform. I'm just asking this because I'm a VC reporter. Is there a world in which there's like a Airtable ecosystem VC fund, the way that we saw with Slack and some other companies? You know, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, even if the financial returns aren't great on those funds, um, you know, I think it still benefits, uh, you know, us and, and potentially a partner VC um, in that it, it helps stimulate this ecosystem uh, around Airtable. And I think eventually, you know, as the ecosystem grows, um, they actually can generate, you know, significant returns, right? I mean, you, you do see, you know, success stories around the Salesforce ecosystem of sizable businesses being built. Um, so I think early on, it will be more, um, you know, a, uh, a way to just kind of stimulate development to show developers and, and uh, you know, and independent software vendors who might come and build on top of our platform that there is a real market out there and, you know, you can build a, a viable business um, on top of the platform. Um, in the long term, I think it becomes more self-sustaining and, uh, and actually, uh, you know, return generating. So what worries you? Like, what could go wrong for Airtable? Uh, well, there's a lot. Um, you know, I think running running a, a business at, at scale is is uh, is never easy, and I think the the failure modes outnumber the uh, you know the paths to success probably by by uh, a multifold. But you know, I think there there's a lot of um, you know 
a lot of surprising uh, challenges, I think, to just operating a company at scale that I wouldn't have, you know, anticipated as a, you know, bright-eyed uh, and completely naive founder, you know, 15 years ago, um, you know, coming into this world. Um, I think for one, you know, you can have perfect strategy. You know, we may have our product roadmap really clearly defined. We may say, you know, here's our, our strategy to differentiate our, our, uh, our product um, and to, you know, really be the best in our own category, um, and even here's a go-to-market plan that makes a lot of sense on paper, in practice, it's still so hard to actually execute on those things. I mean, you know, it's, it's one thing to have five salespeople deliver against your plan. It's another to have 50 or to have 500, and just there's a lot of human error um, that can happen in that process, right? So I think it takes a certain level of operational and organizational excellence to even deliver against a plan that makes strategic sense. Um, I think second, uh, you know, there, there is this looming shadow of are we going to see, you know, a really serious uh, threat from Microsoft at some point, in which case, you know, that's, that could be a, uh, you know, there could be an overnight change in terms of the competitive landscape uh, if that happens. And, um, you know, I think the, the only thing that we can do uh, to hedge against that is to, as aggressively as possible, invest into our product and into getting scale so that when it happens, we have a product that takes a really, really long time to catch up to, if at all, uh, you know, it, it can be. Um, and that we also have a strong ecosystem. We have a strong install base of customers that don't just use us, but really love us um, and are really deeply embedded uh, in terms of the, the value and the workflows they've, they've created on the, the product. So um, I think, you know, in, in a way, it's almost scarier to have uh, the uncertainty of a potential future um, competitor than to just know where they stand. Um, I actually feel better about the, the competition that we see publicly, Asana, Monday, Smartsheet, Notion, you mentioned, um, because we know where they are and we, we get to see, you know, all of their earnings reports for the public ones um, and, you know, how they're doing in terms of, uh, you know, different segments of the market. And, um, and we can glean, um, you know, uh, their product roadmap just based on what they are launching and talking about, you know, publicly. So, um, in a way, I think the, the uh, scarier risks are the unknown ones versus the known. Is Microsoft like the, the big wild card or could that be a number of other companies? I think it, it could also be the, the other cloud companies. So Google, Amazon, um, insofar as, you know, if you think about cloud computing and how large that market is, um, it's now provably large, right? When AWS first came out, people were wondering, why is Amazon, you know, this giant retailer online, like now selling servers? Um, that seems like a weird and potentially niche thing for them to do. And obviously at this point, you know, it's become this, this incredibly large business because of just the explosive growth of cloud compute as a, as a category. If you think about all of the applications that are created on top of cloud computing platforms, you know, what percent of those actually should be built on top of cloud infrastructure as opposed to more declaratively, um, i.e., you know, without code and without, you know, having to manage even cloud servers built um, on something that looks more like Airtable with low code, right? Um, so I think there, there is this, um, you know, massive, you know, potentially existential threat or at least opportunity for every, you know, cloud provider to think about this as the next layer of abstraction in cloud. Um, you had, you know, uh, hardware and managing servers, you know, in, in literal server farms, and then now you have, um, you know, cloud. Um, but I think the next layer is to almost do away with the need to build uh, a lot of code, uh, write a lot of code to, to build applications. Um, and so, 
you know, I think Amazon and, and Google have both uh, done some, you know, built, built products in the space. Uh, Amazon with uh, a product called uh, Honeycode, um, and then uh, Google with um, a, uh, a product called Tables. But, um, but, you know, it's still very early innings, and I think we, you know, based on what we've seen, we feel good about how our product differentiates and continues to gain more inroads within enterprise. Okay, so what is your Web3 strategy? I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> Although... I hold zero crypto. <laughs> Although I would love to see an Airtable token. Um, to end on a super positive note, the pandemic. <laughs> what did that teach you about the future of work? Or I guess the present of work? Yeah. Well, I think there's the internal side of things where I was a big believer in the office. And I was you know, kind of dismissive or skeptical of any companies that were primarily remote or hybrid. I just, you know, I thought it was a weird uh, concept to not show up into the office where you can tap people on the shoulder and like brainstorm on whiteboards, et cetera. And I think what I've personally learned is just how productive we can be, um, you know, both on a company level, but also societally when you know, many of us are, have been working remotely predominantly for the, the past two years. And so it's just been this incredible showing of you know, adaptability that we can figure out how to rethink you know, pretty much like the, the way that every second of most of our jobs works, uh, you know, especially in, in, in knowledge work and in, in, you know, certainly so in tech, um, you know, almost overnight, right? And not have as much of a disruption to you know, our productivity as we would have anticipated. So for us you know, internally, I think, shifting to a more and more hybrid and remote friendly culture. And then I think, you know, macro, uh, you know, looking at how Airtable plays into the broader landscape of, you know, the digitization of enterprise, I think, um, you know, this is the time that every company has an excuse and even an impetus to go and rethink how they work. And so we've benefited, I think, along with, um, you know, other players uh, in, in the digital works space um, to, you know, in that every company is investing into new products um, that, that really increase ROI and, uh, you know, and, and ultimately give people a more efficient way of collaborating, especially when they're not all able to tap each other on the shoulder. Very cool. Well, thank you so much thank for being so here, much. Howie. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.